There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 15th of March 2012. For newcomers, I always suggest you make use of the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com where hopefully you'll get enough free audios for download that you'll start to understand the system you've been born into and to realize that literally your whole reality is given to you from birth basically, first by your parents who've been indoctrinated uh, through lifelong education. By education, I mean the media and entertainment, too. And then, of course, school takes over for you, and uh, that further is your indoctrination. So much so that uh, philosophers like Jack C. Lull said that it was essential for good propaganda to take on a person. It was so essential to give them a, 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 an education first. Without education, it was more difficult. That's why guys who skip out of school and hardly attend it and end up on the street selling whatever they're selling, um, they're very streetwise. They're not fooled by things so easily as the ones who are educated. So help yourself to the audios and you'll find out the big system that runs the world and how our thoughts are shaped for us, our topics are shaped, our opinions are given to us, and, um, and how, where they intend to take the whole planet now. It's not just countries or it's the whole human species, basically, uh, down the road into the future because the future is always planned. That's what really staggers some people to realize that the future is actually planned way, way ahead, 100 years or more, by big foundations. Foundations outlive the people who work in them, remember. So generations can work on the same goal, one after another, for hundreds of years if need be. And that's why they form the foundations to make these things happen. And the foundations work and are often owned by the big international bankers and international corporations. So they have quite an easy time of it really shaping the future. So remember, too, that you are the audience that bring me to you so you can help me uh, keep going by buying the books and just cutting through the matrix.com. I don't sell anything else and I don't... Um, promote any products or anything like that. So it's up to you if you want to hear this kind of information to keep me going. And you can do so by going into cuttingthroughmatrix.com and ordering the books and discs. From the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can use a personal check. You can still use an international postal money order. You're the only country in the world left that can still do that to Canada. And you can send cash instead, or you can use PayPal to order. So remember, straight donations are really welcome. And across the world, you've got Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal once again. And what I do is to go into the histories of the organizations that came together, uh, openly that is. It's much, much older than, than, than that. It's hundreds of years old, actually, the idea of running the world. Go into the writings of Francis Bacon. Go into the writings of John Dee, and he talked about a British empire and free trade and how they would create this around the world. But it really solidified and came into uh, the public view for the first time, as I say, with the groups that were formed in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, such as the Cecil Rhodes Foundation and the Milner Group that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs and commonly known in America for their branches of the Council on Foreign Relations. 
They have branches across the whole planet, bringing the world together and under a particular plan. And you'll see the plan if you go into the United Nations agenda for the future, Agenda 21, and beyond. In fact, they've once even gone beyond that now. And where we're supposed to, what change is supposed to happen in this century? This is a century of change where eventually you'll live in your own little communities. That's what they hope to break you down into. Uh, but really, um, what they're, they're also conflicted in some countries about using the overcrowded cities to cram you into for a while as they take down the rural areas. They've said that eventually less than 3% of very, very wealthy people will live out in the country. Too expensive for everyone else. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix, talking about, well, not just world government, but the whole of society and how our minds are shaped by those who control it, because we are controlled. Every society is basically controlled by those who hold the power naturally, and power today derives from the accumulation of cash and having the ability to pay your children through the best or the top uh, universities on the planet, the ones with the real well-established names. And uh, and that's how you hold on to power, really, is just breeding the right children, because uh, the, the, some of the elites, really, they're matched up with their wives. And money always marries money, too. So the psychopathic types, unfortunately, are the ones who tend to get to the top, either through royalty, and, and royalty gets to the top through slaughtering people around them as a family until they take over more lands, until they're, they run countries, basically. And it's the same thing with the CEOs of corporations. They're very good, remember, psychopaths at flattering people and manipulating others around them to get what they want. And, uh, and other psychopaths tend to gather around them once they have that power. And in fact, the psychopaths only worship those who have more power than themselves. So they tend to congregate at the big, um, uh, the, the tops of big uh, international corporations, things like that. And when they get a, a better ed- education, they generally are good speakers. Of course, they end up doing a speaking circuits across the world at uh, conventions to do with CEO conventions or IBM conventions and the handful of, of big corporations that really have, have been deemed the right ones to rule this world. Look at the UN uh, smart cities idea. They came out of IBM. And you'd be surprised how far that's gone already. Uh, smart cities, literally, and they've got smart cities already built. I think they're on, they're on their third version of them already within a span of a year. They put up these cities and get employees to work in them, but these cities are literally to do with the future and how we'll all live being spied upon in your own bedrooms even. But as long as it's unobtrusive, I won't bother you. They've already done their studies on that. You get used to it, you don't even think about them. So as long as they have hidden cameras everywhere and hidden microphones, you'll get used to the idea. Exactly the system that George Orwell talked about in 1984. And he wrote the book, of course, in, or it's published in 1948, about this totalitarian society. Because at that time, you see, uh, the big wigs who owned the world were looking at the big movements, which they'd helped establish, such as communism in some countries, and they'd funded it too. But they were always looking at ways to control the vast majority of the population. See, power must always be on the lookout for 
being overthrown by people below them. So they want to make sure when they bring in a new creed or an understanding or a system of things like communism, then they hold on to it because they know there'll be guys coming up from the younger ranks who will want to take over. So they're always worried about the general population and they find ways to keep them suppressed or, or stupid, in fact, as the case may be, but definitely compliant and obedient. And that's always been the way, really, of governments. We're given a Disney version of history. Uh, in fact, a lot of people today literally get their history from the History Channel, which is junk. It literally is junk. Incredible. When you compare what they give you to uh, the old books written, even sometimes at the time or right after events, they're giving you absolute junk. Because history is always rewritten, you see. It's a kind of Disney version of, of reality. Because they want you to be very naive, and they want you to be compliant. And they want you to think that everybody around the world is pretty nice. And it's, and it's not really true. It's not really true. There are places in, in the world where psychopaths are still fighting to, uh, other psychopaths to get up into power just to control an area within a country. Or, or, or a big continent, for instance. So, as I say, it doesn't really change. Nature doesn't change. So, the, years ago, the big boys decided to find ways to literally fix society in certain ways by getting scientific indoctrination, uh, lifelong indoctrination, by using the media. And I touched on that yesterday with uh, Julian Huxley's talks uh, for, about UNESCO when he's, on its purpose and its philosophy. And I gave a link for that too, so you can read it for yourselves. But some sites out there have them broken down into specific uh, parts of his speech on its purpose, you see. Because it's very interesting to understand its purpose and its philosophy. Why did they want a controlled society? Now remember Huxley himself, Julian Huxley, was descended from Sir Thomas Huxley, who was the, the champion. He was called Darwin's bulldog. He was best pal of Charles Darwin, and he took over the, the theory of evolution and pushed it after Darwin had gone. And the Huxleys themselves are interrelated, if you go down through their, their family tree, with the, the, the Darwin family. Uh, and um, it's interesting to see how they all come together, all the big names that we're so used to hearing, uh, and that are still taught at university, of course. But... He said that UNESCO, which is the, in the Julian Huxley was the first CEO of UNESCO, United Nations Educational and Social and Scientific Organization, social and scientific organization, that's the part you have to understand, also can, uh, can and should promote the growth of international contacts, international organizations, that's all your NGOs that the foundations fund and actual international achievements which will offer increasing resistance to the forces making for division and conflict. In particular, it can be both on its own and in close relation with other United Nations agencies such as the Food and Agricultural Organization. And you've got to look into these organizations. They're up there at the United Nations website and go through their histories and scour the internet for the old speeches given from these different parts of the United Nations. Because they they mentioned food being used as a weapon. It's always been used as a weapon. Remember that. And they also said eventually, at the Food and Agricultural Organization, that all food in the world will be under the jurisdiction of the Food and Agricultural Organization, and they will distribute the food of the world to the different regions they will set up across the planet. And part of the reason for that, they said, would be to enforce the people to bring down their populations. They'll give you quotas, rations, if you like. 
And if you don't uh, bring down your population to the desired uh, level, then you, simply, you won't get more food. In fact, they'll probably bring the quota down the following year to force you to deal with some really nasty stuff, like who you want to kill. And then the World Health Organization. Very Orwellian, the, t- the terminology they use, you understand. Uh, is to promote the international application of science to human welfare. Now, science to human welfare, part of the human welfare is the fact that they said there's too many people. Too many people, you see, on the planet. They want to bring it down to a manageable level. Uh, not just too many people, too many of the wrong kind of people, I should say. And they've actually said that. And so it says, as the benefits of such world-scale collaboration becomes plain, which will be speedily uh, be the case in relation to the food and health of mankind, it becomes increasingly more difficult for any nation to destroy them by resorting to isolationism or to war. So in other words, they want to set up a, a totalitarian regime worldwide, supposedly to stop any nation um, having a conflict with another. It sounds not bad, that part. And people go for that, especially young children, they go for that. That's okay, you know. Kiss and make up sort of thing. But you're under a, a bigger tyranny than ever before because they mean it when they say to use the science, you know, application of science to human welfare. You understand what, how they define human welfare. What they mean by that. And further, since the world is in process of becoming one, the world is in process of becoming one. This was 1947. And since a major aim of UNESCO must be to help in the speedy and satisfactory realization of this process, UNESCO must pay special attention to international education. So they created the international education system to education as a function of a world society. That's the Norse propaganda indoctrination. They've already done it with an EU, the European Parliament. They've got a whole educational system for the European child now would have eliminated most of the history of the countries of Europe. Just like the communists did in some countries. Also did it in Cambodia. Remember, everything started when, the, when victory was achieved and it was year one. Same with the EU. It's no coincidence. See, all these things are related to the one organization that creates them all. This is in addition to its function in relation to national societies, to regional or religious or intellectual groups, or to local communities. Every Part of society is catered to, in other words. And it says, peace must be therefore founded if it's not to fail upon the intellectual and moral solidarity of mankind. Remember the solidarity movement in Poland? Actually, the the word solidarity in this particular terminology was created in Scotland at Aberdeen University. It's been a big part, actually, of pushing the communist side of the Capcom system. Because you must have two sides. It actually mentions it here, in fact. It says, in addition, we must know much about the biological evolution and the existence of several types of selection, natural selection, the evolutionary conflict between the limitations set by an organism's nature and past history and the requirement of the present and its solution by means of some new adjustment. They're talking about adjusting all of you, folks. This last point immediately recalls the thesis and antithesis and synthesis of Hegelian philosophy and the Marxist recon, uh, reconciliation of opposites. That's what they called it, to get uh, something going 
You've got to be controversial. You put something out there that upsets folk. They'll retaliate by refuting what you're saying and opposing it. And then, of course, uh, you're both guided to, to have meetings and you come to a synthesis where you both uh, collude together and give up parts of your, of your principles to create something new. It says, indeed, dialectical materialism was the first radical attempt at an evolutionary philosophy. Unfortunately, it was based too exclusively upon principles of social as against biological evolution. And, and that's what Aldous Huxley was probably on about. And it says, a prior reasoning is inadequate to arrive at truth. Truth is never complete and explanation is never really fully or externally valid. So, so there can be no truth, he says. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix. Just going over some of the, the quotes really from Julian Huxley, who was a big player in, set, in, in setting up the system you're going through today, in fact, and what you've already come through in the past with the Cold War and, and, and so on. He talks about that, how necessary that was, in fact, for the, for the whole movement towards globalism and, and world government uh, would take place. It would, it would need these factions to be really opposite each other on the way. And that's what he says. He said uh, that he has to use the, the Hegelian dialectic and the, the dialectical materialism of Marx with his uh, radical attempt at an evolutionary philosophy. And he says that um, the synthesis of Hegelian philosophy and the Marxist reconciliation of opposites based on it. Indeed, dialectical materialism was the first radical attempt at an evolutionary philosophy for change, you see. And he says, too, taking the techniques of persuasion and information and true propaganda that we've come to, uh, but we've learned to apply nationally in war, where it's all lies, right? And deliberately bending them to the international tasks of peace, if necessary, utilizing them as Lenin envisaged to overcome the resistance of millions to desirable change. And again, who decides what desirable change is? using drama to reveal reality and art as a method by which, in Sir Stephen Talent's works, truth becomes impressive and a living principle of action and aiming to produce concerted effort, which, to quote Grierson once more, is a background of faith and a sense of destiny. This must be a mass philosophy, a mass creed, and it can never be achieved without the use of the media and of mass communication. Mass communication. UNESCO in the press of its detailed work must never forget this enormous feat. And then he goes into the two tasks for mass media divisions of UNESCO. The one general, the other special. The special one is to enlist the press and the radio and the cinema to the fullest extent in the service of formal and adult education. He's not talking about two and two is four. It's, it's talking through fiction as well. And in your entertainment channels and your history channels even. Or science channels, because he mentions of science and learning, of art and culture. The general one is to see that these agencies are used both to contribute to mutual comprehension between nations and cultures and to promote the growth of a common outlook shared by all nations and cultures. So its real intention was to give you a common outlook, opinions on everything across the whole planet. 
conclusion, the task before UNESCO is to help emergence of a single world culture with its own philosophy and background of ideas and with its own broad purpose. This is opportune since this is the first time in history that the scaffolding and the mechanisms for world unification have become available and also the first time that man has had the means of laying a worldwide foundation for the minimum physical welfare of the entire human species. And it's necessary for the moment that two opposing philosophies of life, it is necessary for the moment, right? The two opposing philosophies of life, that was capitalism versus communism. It's necessary that they existed, uh, confront each other from the West and from the East. So it was all, the whole Cold War was fake, except for the big boys in the armaments industry. Because they were in the governments too, they're allowed to tax you into the ground to protect you. It's always the same old story. And what they were using your cash for was to go into real um, high-tech missiles and also means of eventually controlling all of you by cameras and different techniques and, and the computer as well. Because they, they planned on using the computer to bring you all together 50-odd years ago, at least. He says you may categorize the two philosophies as two supernationalisms or as individualism versus individualism versus collectivism or as American versus the Russian way of life, or as capital versus communism, or as Christianity versus Marxism. Can these opposites be reconciled, this antithesis be resolved in a higher synthesis? I believe not only that this can happen, but that through the inexhaustible dialectic of evolution it must happen. In pursuing this aim we must issue dogma, whether it be theological dogma or Marxist dogma, East and West will not agree on a basis of the future if they merely hurl at each other the fixed ideas of the past. For that is what dogmas are, the crystallizations of some dominant system of thought of a particular epoch. A dogma may, of course, crystallize tried and valid experience, but if it be dogma, it does so in a way which is rigid, uncompromising, and intolerant. If we are to achieve progress, we must learn to uncrystallize our dogmas. In other words, be very, very flexible. And um, it's interesting, too, that George Bush uh, called for the U.S. to rejoin UNESCO when he was in office because of their philosophies and, and, and really how they were brainwashing children especially. And the nasty stuff to do, but it was all Marxist too, that they, they trained the children from very, very early age to engage in sexual promiscuity. That way they would never bond with someone, so one of the planks was, of, of the communist regime would be uh, worked out. You'd never bond with a partner, you never married. Marriage was to end, you see, under communism. Still to come, yeah, it's, it's pretty well here, where we are now. It's dying out. Anyway, it says, um, Bush says, UNESCO is often referred to as a school board for the world, and as such, it reflects the educational philosophy of its founding director general. And he says, um, this was Bush, Bush on Huxley, in his book, UNESCO, his purpose and his philosophy, Huxley spills the beans. And as he also said, the task before UNESCO is to help the emergence of a single world culture with its own philosophy and background of ideas and with its own broad purposes. And you think it's all happening by chance, eh? Because you go on holiday somewhere and shake hands with someone and you've changed the world, eh? Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. 
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and we're back cutting through the matrix. Just talking about some of the big boys who help plan the system you're living through today because they're these guys like Aldous Huxley and Julian Huxley and another guy too I'm going to mention which is Charles Galt and Darwin. They're heroes for the boys who run the world today. At the top, they're, they're heroes because they believe in altering our genes. They believe in doing all the things that they all agreed that they have to alter humanity themselves physically by used, using science. One guy who said that uh, they could use hormones uh, in the water, food and inoculations and other means uh, to, to alter men especially uh, and to be more uh, temperate, put it that way, uh, and less manly uh, and ready to fight uh, was Charles Galton Darwin. And again, he's a grandson of Charles Darwin. And he wrote in the book, The Next Million Years, an awful lot of good stuff. You've got to read it. You just got to read it. So it must be if you want to understand what's happening. Because these guys literally worked at uh, world meetings and gave their, whatever they said became law, basically. All of these guys I've mentioned, it became law. And the United Nations and all the groups that have worked for the United Nations since uh, follow the, the writings of these guys. And one on page uh, 112 of the next million years, because they plan to plan the world for a million years, the next million years, he calls it. And, and now he wasn't some vague philosopher either. Charles Galton Darwin was a physicist who worked with at the Manhattan Project. But he says another feature of creeds, he's talking about causes that bring people together, you become a creed or a religion. Another feature of creeds seems to be rather general, though the majority of a population says something like nine-tenths accept their creed implicitly, your belief system and everything else around you, your reality. They, so nine-tenths accept their creed implicitly and regard it as part of the law of nature. They never question it. There's always a small minority who do not. Most people call them the sheep, follow the ideas of their leaders unquestionably, but this minority, the goats, goes by contraries and disbelieves anything that just just because those around them believe it. So the goats are the ones who agitate because they don't believe everything that the rest believe. The goats are often not very pleasant people, but they're usually above the average of intelligence. It's probably the corroding influence of the goats that gradually saps the vitality of a creed by its cumulative infection. And indeed, there may be uh, well be a proportionality between the number of goats in a community and the lifespan of the creed of the sheep in that community. Now, the goats themselves, if you jump back again to Bertrand Russell, the writings of Bertrand Russell, he said that, that amongst the general population, there are those who um, understand what's going on by instinct, first of all, and then by reading and study. And he says, we must recruit them. And if we can't recruit them to be on our side, we have to eliminate them. Because obviously, jumping back to Dalton Darwin here, they'd be good, the goats, they'd agitate and just bring the society to destruction. Anyway, back to the next million years. He says, in f- future history, the constancy of human nature makes it certain that man will continue to be dominated by enthusiasm for creeds of one kind or another. He will persecute and be persecuted again and again for the sake of ideas, some of which to later ages will seem of no importance and even unintelligible. In the, the, the present society today, which is primarily humanistic, they've been given a humanistic uh, understanding through schooling of the world, they can't understand what the Hundred Years' War was or anything like that. 
It says, but there is one much more valuable aspect of creeds that must be noticed. They serve to give a continuity to policy far greater that can be usually harnessed or attained by intellectual conviction. So in other words, once you've created a, a cause and a purpose and an understanding, if, even if it's erroneous, um, it'll last a long time. I guess if the right folk at the top and the cash to back it. There are many cases in history of enlightened statesmen who have devoted their lives to carrying through some measure for the general good. Now he's, he's talking on, on the, from the side of a eugenicist, you understand? So when he talks about the general good, he's talking about something else than, than you'd understand. They may have succeeded only to find that the next generation neglects all that they have done. Think of the founding fathers of the U.S. and the Constitution. So people have devoted their lives to carrying through some successful measure for the general good. They may have succeeded only to find that the next generation neglects all that they have done. So that it becomes undone again in favor of some other quite different way of benefiting humanity. The intellectual adoption of a policy thus often hardly survives for more than a single generation. And this is too short a period for such a policy to overcome the tremendous efforts of pure chance. But if the policy can arouse enough enthusiasm to be incorporated in a creed, then there is at least a prospect that it will continue for something like ten generations, and that is long enough to, to give a fair probability that it will re- prevail over the operations of pure chance. Now, you just bring all your foundations into that, because he was a member of most of these foundations that exist today. And they, they're all, they all have specialized purposes. They fund thousands of non-governmental organizations across the world. They fund the color revolutions that you see agitating within a country before NATO goes in. And so they're creating a creed now through schooling and university primarily uh, for agitation towards the world system of government. But uh, this guy goes into what man is. He says, man is a wild animal. In the past two chapters, I've examined different aspects of nature of man. In the first, he was regarded as just like any other species of wild animal, while at the second, some of his social qualities were considered, which might not be regarded as those of a wild animal. So he's talking about civilization, but what he really goes on to say is that we must, we, talking about his own particular class that he belongs to, uh, must alter humanity themselves. All of humanity except themselves because they must remain wild. Those who lead the world must be, must be, not be domesticated. And he does use the term of domestication of the general population by removal of genes or by, as I say, mainly he suggested they should alter the hormonal levels of male and female. Well, what do you have today? They're bringing the population down by destroying uh, basically the hormonal level of the male. The male, can, the male can hardly produce any workable sperm in the West. That's a fact, folks. The Horizon series in 1992, you got to see it, where literally uh, every test they were doing of men 25 years of age shows showed a, about one less than a third of, of sperm to begin with, and out of that third of sperm, most of it was inviolable because it was non-functional. It was all it was deformed. That's in a span from 1950 to the 1970s I took the test on. 20 years, something happened. Something was introduced into men. And, of course, they've also found out, too, that uh, estrogen, fake, you know, xenoestrogen or synthetic estrogen was put into lots of products which the mother applied on her skin and actually drank as well uh, during the, the gestation period of the male. 
the fetus. And uh, in the first trimester, it literally, even before that, but from the first uh, eight weeks or so, if they did that, the men would never be truly, fully functional men, as in the 1950s version. And it's self-evident today. And this is proven facts. But what it does with the women is make them more aggressive. And I've read articles here where, in places like Britain, the police are complaining that the most uh, aggressive people they're up against now are women. And gangs of them, just like the guys used to be. They're, they're more manly in many ways than, than the guys. And other countries too, even in Australia, they've found out they've got a higher level of testosterone in them, the women, than the men do. So it's very important to know the past and read books like this because only by then you realize, no, this is not an accident. These guys talked about doing this. And when they talk about things at that level, they mean it. They're not whistling in the wind. They're not putting out a list of stuff that Santa Claus is going to deliver. They they want it done, and they go ahead and simply do it. After all, you wouldn't get volunteers. So it's not about domesticating the animal, the human animal. But they themselves, as I say, those who lead the world must be wild, left wild, undomesticated, because they must lead the world. And if you you domesticate a man, you then lose their ability for pure survival. You won't care. You'll just you know, whistle as you go through a, a forest full of wild coyotes or something who are rather hungry. And that's what would happen to you, just disappear. So the chapter as man as a wild animal is awfully important to understand anything. Especially when they say that he himself and, and his type would not uh, be altered. He goes into, two, into also the creed or master breed that will rule the world. It's already here. So every turn the argument leads back to the question of the master breed. Nothing can be done in the way of changing man from a wild into a tame animal. He's talking about all the rest of you, you see. Without first creating such a breed. But most people are entirely inconsistent in their ideas of what they want created. On the one hand, they feel that all the world's problems be solved if only there were, there were a wise and good man uh, who would tell everybody what to do. That's the beneficent dictator they're talking about. But on the other hand, they bitterly resent being themselves told what to do. As to which of these motives would prevail, it seems at least probable that it would be the resentment, it would lead to resentment, so that if the breed should arise in any manner, it would be extirpated before it could ever become well established. It says, however imaginable, that there might be a part of the world in which the breed was accepted and that this part should gain a superiority over the rest of the world because it could develop various suitable breeds of specialists under the control and direction of the master breed. Now you have specialized scientists all breeding within each other. Is that as H.G. Wells said in his book, The Modern Utopia? And you, you, you have uh, bureaucrats interbreeding with each other. That's pretty, pretty common. That's been common for a long, long time. The United Nations, in fact, has a school for their own children of the workers there who end up grow, growing up and, and becoming that, that, that breed that runs the United Nations. And they're not democratic in any fashion whatsoever. And, of course, in the military, too, you've got women in it as well now. And uh, they talked about that, creating a, a military breed as well. That would end up. So these would be specialized breeds that would dominate all the rest, you see. And this is no science fiction. This is from a physicist, very serious guy. And who had, who was a, he himself was a product of generations of working on the theories of evolution and how to alter the human species. 
So until you understand, as I say, these books, you, you won't understand the things that are happening today or why even the UN is where it is, for instance. Why is it, why is the UN building in New York? Why is that? Who demanded that it be built in New York? It was the Soviets. Why? Why did Rockefeller donate the land? And what organizations did Rockefeller belong to? These are these eugenical organizations I'm talking about here. And it be swelling it's on about the creation of the master breed. And it says this would be of great value because they would uh, not be a, the master breed, some of the servant class, mathematicians and so on, be part of the servant class, but they'd still be higher up than the rest of the general population. And it, and it says uh, they'd be part of a more precise prescription for what the qualities of the master breed are to be. It's usually best to build on what has already been rather than to start from nothing. So the natural procedure would be to begin with existing rulers, since these have already established themselves as acceptable to at least a good many of their fellow creatures. One would collect together, say, a hundred of the most important person, uh, per- present rulers, among them, of course, should be included a good many of who exert secret influence without holding any overt office. Well, that's the technocrats, the Brzezinski's, Kissinger's, and hundreds and hundreds more across the world. And tell them to get on with the business of settling what the master breed should be. It's impossible to believe that any such body of men would ever reach agreement on any subject, whatever, so this plan fails. In this search for the qualities of the master breed, the next idea might be to appeal to the wisdom of our forefathers. Plato and his Republic devotes much attention to this very subject. And I mentioned you should read that book too. Mainly the technique that Plato uses in the dialectic to bring his um, imaginary uh, partner that he's talking to uh, around to his way of thinking. That's the technique you have to understand. But he, he says, breeds are specialized for particular purposes. Now that's exactly what, uh, the, the brother of Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley, had in his Brave New World, which he wrote in 1933. You'd breed segments of society for specific tasks. So breeds are specialized for particular purposes, but the essence of masters is that they must not be specialized. They have to be able to deal with totally unforeseen conditions. And this is a quality of wild, not of tame life. So the master breed must remain wild, you see. And these considerations have been assuming the licensing or supposing what we might be able to really change human nature in a heritable manner, and this is far beyond all probability. Returning now to more practical considerations, there seems no likelihood whatsoever of the master breed arising. All through history, the most formidable difficulty of every ruler has been the selection of a successor, and the best intentions have been nearly always disappointed. Of all animals, man is the most ready to try experiments, and they are always candidates. Far too many candidates who regard themselves as fit members for the master breed. Now, all the ones who are who are brown nosers, let's put it that way, uh, who want to get up there and who really try, and they're good yes men. They should read this paragraph. Of all the animals, man is the most ready to try experiments, and there are always candidates. Far too many candidates who regard themselves as fit members for the master breed. This quality is a characteristic of a wild animal, and it will always prevent man from domesticating himself. He will always prevent the creation of the master breed, uh, through which alone the rest of man could be domesticated. The evolution of the human race will not be accomplished in 10,000 years of tame animals, but in the million years of wild animals, because man is and will always continue to be a wild animal. But he also goes on in the book to say there's lots of candidates to be a leader, but... uh, they're, they're not brought into it. And Julian Huxley said the same thing, by the way.
Then he goes on about the limitation of population. We're all dying of cancers now. Just coincidence, though, eh? And he goes on about the too many folk multiplying. The wrong kind of really means. But then he goes into procreative instincts and how to waylay them or even destroy them, in fact, if you're really, really reading properly. Uh, birth control and also abortion would get promoted across the planet. Well, that's what UNESCO does. In fact, Julian Huxley uh, got awards from the Margaret Sanger Foundation and all the other foundations for sterilization and abortions across the third world countries because the third world is not to be allowed to come up to too high up, especially Africa. Africa, uh, all the nations of Africa have, have been... Uh, they'll just keep it going there forever, I think. And Kissinger mentioned that too. The biggest threat to the state was overpopulation of these third world countries. And this is the argument that the eugenicist rates the well-to-do highly is quite quite true if it's read in these terms. For the well-to-do are rather more likely to, uh, than others to possess the quality of hereditary ability through having shown it in several generations. So to get into the club at the top, you've got to have the right breeding, marry the right wives, you see, not not for because you get on with them necessarily, but for her particular family tree of conquest and holding on to cash and your family tree of doing the same and having your offspring inherit these qualities. So they're the ones who get up into the ruling creed, you might say. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix and, and just talking about a couple of the big boys and they have offspring of course and uh, there's, there's the Galton family, Charles Galton, Darwin uh, and the Huxleys and um, it's interesting to see that, that all the big organisations of the same period that they're writing in before World War II and after World War II are still in existence today and some have morphed into other areas but still maintaining their previous areas too and they're working all through society and they're all connected to the United Nations. It's quite fantastic to see that, to see how it really, really works and how science is totally incorporated into all their ideas. But they all mention too about uh, drugging society, you know, either through SOMA in a fictionalized form that would keep everybody happy, uh, tranquilized and, and, and pleasant. And um, uh, and they also discussed other ways of putting things in, their, in the water supply too. You know, of course, we've got fluoride and God knows what else in it now. But here's an article here to show you something that you'd never dream of really in, in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Prescribed heroin is most, more cost-effective than the current addiction treatment that the government puts out. Medically prescribed heroin is more cost-effective than methadone. Now, see, now we're running Afghanistan and we have all the dope, you see. And um, for treating long-term street heroin users, according to a new study by researchers at Providence Health Center or Healthcare and the University of British Columbia, it's published today in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and attribute most of the economic benefits to the fact that recipients of medically prescribed heroin stayed in treatment longer and spent less time in relapse than those receiving methadone. So methadone actually is more addictive in a sense, which is a synthetic form that the government makes sure uh, they prescribe to the addicts because they're all in bed with pharma lobbyists, you see. 
Both results are associated with reduced criminal activity and lower health care costs. So it's interesting because every government, I mean, I've read the ones in, in Britain and the massive amount of money they're spending on methadone addicts. And now you have parts of eugenics societies coming over to Britain. I've put them up on the sites before where women approach, American women approach uh, other women come out of clinics, even doctors' clinics, presuming they're getting a prescription for methadone and asking if they would mind being sterilized or give you a couple of hundred pounds to be sterilized. I might try and find those and put them up again tonight. It's all thought, see, it all ties together with this movement we're on to get rid of all a, a good part of the domesticated species, as Charles Galton Darwin would say. And talking about, again, what they, what they talked about, foundations would, would help rule the world, and, and uh, philanthropists would help rule the world, exactly what Adam Weishaupt talked about too. That's how they get changes made. And they're full of fraud, of course. $28 billion health fund backed by Bill Gates and Bono is investigated for fraud. And Microsoft's founder charity has donated over $100 million. You should really see, try and see the documentary Star Suckers. I put it up before. Two parts. You've got to see the second part to see what happens to Bono and his particular... He said they draped in billions for their, their big ploy to get money for, for Ethiopia or whatever. And you have to really see what happened to the Ethiopians. They were led in an area of the desert following the, the trail of the food that was getting dumped and wiped out by their government. Yeah? Just a coincidence, really. They don't all work together. But as I say, if you can't understand the past, even the recent past, you won't understand the present or where it's going. You'll just be confused and angry as to what's happening. But at least this way, as I say, you'll get a, a step up the ladder to understanding why things are happening. Because these guys never change their plans once they make them, even if it's 50 or 100 years ago. From Hamish from South Frontier, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your God's school with you.